All right, we are in Psalm 50 this morning, continuing on a study in the Psalms. So if you would turn there in your Bibles, if you have one with you, or you can listen along. And uh, Before I begin, I just want to commend to you <clears throat> the reading that Ed Faudry read from the book of Ephesians. As I continue to listen to that and meditate on it, it occurs to me that we don't know this, but it's highly likely, I suspect, that Paul was thinking of Psalm 50 when he was writing out that exposition in Ephesians 5. There is so much connection. I could pretty much preach the same sermon if it was from Ephesians chapter 5. That being said, let's read God's word. And I'm only going to start with the first six verses because we're going to look at the rest of it later in the, in the, in the, um, the sermon. Psalm 50, a psalm of Asaph. The mighty one, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes, he does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire, around him a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. Selah. Let's pray. Father, we come into your presence today. Again, uh, highlighting that you summon us. You are our, our Lord and our God. So Lord, teach us and form us and fashion us as your, as your people now who are bowed before you and ready to hear your good word of grace to us. As uh, the end of the parable that we just read, we pray, Lord, that you would give us ears to hear. We pray these things through Jesus' name. Amen. In 2018, the Pew Research Center surveyed Americans who attended religious services at least once or twice a month about their most important reason for attending. And what they found was that 61% said their most important reason for getting out of bed and dragging themselves to church in the morning is to become closer to God. Think about that. For all the problems that the American church has, that's pretty encouraging, isn't it? 61%. Now, I want us to think again, because if we're a typical congregation, it's safe to assume, on the other hand, that between three and five out of ten of us saw something else as more important for coming to church today. That's not so good. Maybe yours is one of the other popular survey answers. Uh, To be a better person, to be part of a community of faith, comfort in tough times, to raise my children morally, or there was a group of people that said, no, there's no reason that's really very important. I just come. (laughs) Maybe we need Psalm 50 more than we realize because it helps us work through our more or less good reasons to the most important reason. Psalm 50 helps us to answer this two-part question. When the church comes together to worship God, What does God really want from us? 
And how can I guard my, against my worship of God becoming an occasion to fall into all too common sins like moralism or hypocrisy? Those are the questions that Psalm 50 is confronting us with this morning. Before we jump in, though, I want to remind us why we're here in the book of Psalms at this section right here, okay? The book of Psalms, as I've stated before, is divided into five books. And book two, which is the one that we're in right now, is sometimes called the book of Elohim, the creator God. More often than any of the others, the name for God, the title of God, Elohim, occurs in book two of the Psalms. And one reason I think for that is because the theme of the book is communication. Communication to peoples who know God primarily as their creator, but who don't yet realize and know that God is who he reveals himself to his covenant people. So book two Psalms are generally characterized by a dialogue between Israel and the nations. And it's featured very prominent here in Psalm 50. So maybe you haven't realized, but during the season of Lent, the 40 days that uh, occur in the liturgical church calendar that we're in right now before Easter, um, we're going to consider a four-psalm unit, 49 through 52, that highlights the need for reflection and repentance, both for the church and for the watching world. So just to give you a preview here, 50 this week, uh, in two weeks as we're alternating back and forth, Steve Hollage and I will do 51, and then at Easter we'll do Psalm 49, God willing, and then after that, we'll look at the, the psalm that corresponds with Psalm 49, which is Psalm 52, a four-psalm unit in Book 2 of the Psalms. I've divided this, this uh, sermon up into three points, as I usually do, but I'm only going to give you the first two points first, okay? Covenant visitation and covenant inspection. There is a third point, and we will get to that. Now, here's what, how I want us to set the scene, Okay? Um, a number of months ago, back in October, I think it was, my wife and I, we went up to Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and saw Esther, the production at the Sight and Sound Theater. Have any of you heard of Sight and Sound Theater? Been up there for a show? I know Steve Josephson is a big fan of this. Yes. So here's what I want us to do. I want us to imagine that we're all getting ready to take our seats for a show at some place like Sight and Sound, a faith-based kind of theater, and we're getting excited, Okay. And so you pull out your program, and you say, oh, God the righteous judge. <laughs> I've, I've, I've seen one like this before. This one's going to be good. And so you sit down, and you anticipate what's going to happen. And then, finally, the house lights dim, and the narrator's voice booms through the overhead electronic speakers as he begins reading the play's opening lines. Ready? The mighty one, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. You can imagine the excitement in the room. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. You can anticipate the lights starting to shine around. Our God comes and he does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire. Around him, a mighty tempest. You can sense that your heart rate's going up because you're excited. This is the beginning of the show. And you think you know this is going to be one of those that's exciting. El, Elohim, Yahweh. That's the Hebrew here. Those are the, the three divine names that open the psalm. And you know, if you know your Bible, that the only other time that those three are, are 
are coupled together or tripled together is in Joshua 22, when God's people are saying, look, God, don't judge us. We've done what's right. El, Elohim, Yahweh. And you get excited because you're going, yeah, that's the Canaanite conquest. I know how this play is going to go. Good guys against bad guys. We saw Esther, Haman versus Mordecai, God's people. It all works out well in the end. And you're eating your popcorn and you're sipping your soda and you're going, this is going to be a good time. <laughs> the God of the Bible has that rightful claim to the title El, which is a kind of a generic title for God, which was common in all the Canaanite religions around the area. It's the, it's the way that they used it for their highest God of their pantheon. But God, the one true God, the one who created all things, is the one who rightly can claim the title because he is God of gods. Thus, El is sometimes translated, as it is in our ESV text here, the Mighty One. Now, Elohim, as I said and alluded to, is a title that's used in Genesis for the very beginning of the story of creation. And then, of course, Yahweh, or all caps Lord in your Bible translations, is God's covenant name. So already at the, at the very start of the, of, the, of the play, piling up the names and the titles of God at the beginning of Psalm 50 has the effect of preparing the worshiper for the solemn nature of the event that's about to take place. Elohim, the creator God, and Yahweh, the redeemer God, are one God, El, the mighty one. And this God here we see addresses the whole earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. In other words, from east to west, God and his visitation is a public spectacle for all the world to watch. Now next we have verses 2 and 3. Zion as we've seen in this series of psalms, is the location of the Lord's temple in Jerusalem. And there you can imagine how he shines forth in the perfection of his beauty. And if you know your Bibles, you know the stories. So did the ancient Israelites. He shined forth in the Exodus. He shined forth at Mount Sinai, where Israel was first constituted, gathered as a nation in covenant with the Lord. And he shined forth with his army of heavenly hosts, his angels, surrounded in a bright light splendor. I mean, this is way better than sight and sound theater with all of their, their, uh, their accoutrements and all their, their technical spectacles. This is in real life. God as the divine warrior appeared at Mount Sinai in the cloud, the, the, the cloud of glory, the Shekinah, if you will, and his appearance, when he comes like that, is often accompanied by powerful and dangerous forces. A consuming fire. A great east wind storm. This is not just a rainstorm, pitter-patter with the rain. No, it's the, it's the Tasmanian devil in a sense. And then finally arriving. This is the way that God comes on the scene when he visits his people. God the divine warrior who descends from heaven onto the mountaintop as the divine lawgiver and the divine judge. Now we're in verses 4 through 6, still in the introduction. Since they are ever-present, and therefore they see everything that happens, God often, he typically summons the heavens and the earth to serve as witnesses of his covenant. Okay? Why does he do that? Well, verse 4, that he may judge his people. Now you might say in your seats, hmm, um, what does God mean by judging his people? And uh, verse 5, though, though whew, 
it quickly buries that unsettling thought as God speaks for the first time in this psalm. His voice thunders from the storm. What does he say? Gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. And you go, whew, okay, God's calling me his faithful ones. This is, this is good. Okay, we're, we're back on the right page. I think I've got this. That's right. Yeah, this is us, God's faithful ones, right? We are his beloved chosen people in covenant with God by his temple sacrifices. This is a good thing. And then verse 6 is there, or you might say our response, practically on cue as if they're actors in the play. The heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. It almost sounds like a chant, doesn't it? The heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. The heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. You can feel the energy in the theater um, rising as you sense what this is going to be about. And then Selah. Selah is a vague, normally untranslated Hebrew word in the Psalms that separates one thought from another. And in this case, my guess is that Selah functions something like, you said it, God is judge, so get ready for it. And that brings us to our second point. What we have here is covenant inspection. We have a shocking turn of events in verse 7. Israel expects when God arrives that he's going to assemble them and the rest of the nations so that in the presence of all, God will judge those who don't worship him as Lord. And this is the show that I've prepped you for. And this is the show that Israel was expecting when they took their seats in that theater eagerly anticipating the show when they will watch God judge the pagan nations. But when the curtain lifts and the spotlight shines down, they can barely see around themselves. You ever been an actor on a stage and you realize that the lights are shining on you and you can't see anybody who's sitting around you because they're in the dark? And you realize that the nations are the ones that are in the audience watching you. People of God, Psalm 50 is a summons for all the world, believers and unbelievers, to come into his presence like we've done here so that the world can watch how God deals with you and me, his people. We are the ones this morning who are on stage. God is inspecting us and granting a nation, the nations into, uh, or a window into what it means for judgment to begin at the house of God. In this visitation, the, this particular inspection, it focuses on how God's people measure up to covenant sacrifice and covenant law. And we're going to spend the rest of the sermon unpacking what that means. Psalm 50 is written to all Israel, Old Testament nation of Israel, and her fulfillment in the New Testament, both Jew and Gentile in the church of Jesus Christ. But wait, you might say, and I see a lot of you putting your noses in the Bible, and I'm really glad for that, because this was a shock. I set you up for it. You might be saying, but wait, 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 wait. Why would God turn the tables to judge those who he just named my faithful ones? Does that occur to you? It did to me. I tried to work it out. And here's the answer, how it makes sense. The answer is in the nature of the covenant. 
We've talked about how the Hebrew word chesed is the word for God's covenant faithfulness to his people. And then my faithful ones, the ones that we're questioning right now, that we're hung up on, that's actually a word that's the recipient form of chesed. So my faithful ones are the recipients of chesed, something like God's covenant subjects. What this means is that my faithful ones refers here to the entire covenant community. Not just a subset of the righteous within the nation of Israel, not just the ones who, who, have, who have got it right, who are living in repentance and faith and, and, and loving Christ and the godly within our, within our midst. It's talking about all of those who are connected more or less to God through covenant. My faithful ones is everyone connected by covenant to God's church. And if you unpack, by the way, that parable that I shared with us earlier with the children, the parable of the wheat and the tares, you dig down into it, and Jesus could have been talking about how my faithful ones are the wheat and the tares. Let me read verses 7 through 15 for us. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. So now that the Psalm's introduction, verses 1 through 6, is finished, God enters the scene and speaks. And first, as we can see, God commends Israel. He gives them a good word. So we can see from here that most really are observant in their sacrificial rites required to approach God in worship. But apparently, we might say that, that three to five out of every ten had forgotten the purpose and the significance of the sacrifices to restore the covenant relationship of love. They, in fact, actually started to treat the sacrifices not as a means to an end, but as the end themselves, as if, most of all, God wants sacrifices because somehow he needs food and drink offerings to be satisfied. I know it sounds silly, but we have a tendency to fall into this, and we're going to explore this in a moment. Here we have our first inspection, our first covenant inspection, that calls for a course correction. And what God tells us is that what he really wants is he wants us to remind us that he's not hungry or needy, but that he, what he wants is thankful worship. Now, that's simple enough, and you might be thinking, okay, I think I'm off the hook because I don't think that that's a sin I'm committing. But it still requires explanation because it's easy to misunderstand what he's getting at. Now, I want you to think of it this way. Uh, when my children were little, uh, we came up with a system so that they could come and interrupt mom and dad without being rude when we were talking to someone else. And we would have them employ this when we were in places like church, right? So that we're not constantly being pulled and tugged away uh, from conversations of ministry, conversations of friendship by our kids who wanted to know when we were going home or something like that. So the system that we came up with was they would come up to us 
and they would touch our arm, and that would be the, the signal that they were in need of something, okay? And they were expected to wait patiently for me to interrupt or to end the conversation, and then I would be able to turn to them, and I'd be able to say, what is it? Now, the, situ the system works really well. I mean, uh, one of my kids just yesterday uh, remembered that that's the case and employed it, and we don't even talk about that anymore, so it's something that, that, that worked. But imagine if one of my kids came up to me, touched my arm, and I finally interrupted or ended the conversation and turned and said, what is it? And they said, oh, nothing. I'm just touching your arm. I, I know that's what you want, and then just walked away. <laughs> my kids are laughing because you've probably thought about that. <laughs> if you were me, would you be proud of your son or your daughter, or would you be annoyed? Now, if they did it once, you'd probably think that's cute. But if that's all they did, no, I'm just practicing the system. You like your arm touched. Thanks, Dad. No, you'd be irritated, right? That's not the point. You don't need your, 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 your arm touched. That's, that's the means to the end. Now, I know it's not a perfect analogy, okay? But I think, in a sense, that's what it means for sacrifices, the system of sacrifice, so that we can come into God's presence, satisfy his, his, his ordination for how we get his attention, wait patiently, so that we can come into the presence of a holy God who we can then, when he gives us his attention, we can relate to him as covenant child to covenant father. You see that? What God is asking us to understand is that sacrifice is a means to an end. What does God want? He wants you because he loves you. He wants you to be thankful. He wants you to offer your life as a living sacrifice on his altar with gratefulness for his love, for his attention, for his care, for his provision, for his direction, for his lordship, for everything about him. Now, here's another implication about this. Ritualistic moralism, okay, in worship, or what used to be called formalism in a previous day, that's an ever-present danger, I think, for God's people, especially for those churches that take the elements or the, the rituals of worship with a serious solemnity. It doesn't matter if you're a contemporary church or a traditional church. We've all got rituals. We've all got elements of our worship service. But the danger is in going through the external motions without a thankful and obedient inner disposition and believing that God is content, if not elated, but at least he's, he's okay with it, with our external acts of obedience. The purest form of external worship, God's telling us, if it has no spirit-infused gratitude directed to God, actually invites his judgment. In his simple and profound signature style, uh, Pastor Tim Keller writes about this kind of sin in his devotional book on the Psalms. It's called The Songs of Jesus. This is what he writes. Uh, moralism is, uh, quote, the idea that our ethical life and religious observance, we can put God in our debt so that he owes us things. On the contrary, grateful joy for our unreserved free salvation should be motivating all we do. So he says, examine your heart. That's what Psalm 50 is asking us to do. All the world's watching, so we ought to show them what it's like to be a Christian. Do you feel God owes you a better life? 
Do you obey him because you feel you have to in order to get what you want? Or out of loving wonder for what he has done? And then he offers a prayer. And so I'm going to encourage us to close our eyes and to speak silently. If this is pricking your heart right now, follow after me. Lord, I cannot give you anything without remembering that both the thing I am giving you and even the desire to give it to you are both from you anyway. I can never put you in my debt. Because of what, God, what Jesus did, I am not my own. The Bible tells me that I'm bought with a price. So forgive me, Lord. Let that insight rid me of all grumbling and self-pity. Amen. I'm glad if you prayed that prayer. That's the first um, sin, if you will, that God inspects us of. And then he turns in verses 16 through 21, and I'll read all the way through, actually, uh, 22 and 23, I think, for a different group in God's covenant community. But to the wicked, God says, what right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? For you hate discipline, and you cast my words behind you. If you see a thief, you are pleased with him, and you keep company with adulterers. You give your mouth free reign for evil, and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done, and I have been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself, but now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. I changed my mind. I'm going to stop right there. The wicked that, that God now addresses are the covenant breakers within the covenant community. Okay, so today these are part of the church. Uh, we might call them even members and regular attenders or adherents if you're a clerk of session. <laughs> they profess faith, this is the idea, with their mouth, and they know God's law in their mind. But in their hearts, they actually despise the privileges of the covenant. The wicked are in the habit of reciting God's statutes in worship, and even in the world, kind of to, to, uh, to gain the trust of faithful people, to, to wear God's uh, little statutes and laws and, and faithful sayings kind of as a badge of honor, like I'm in the club. But God's telling us that he's not fooled by any of that. What they're really trying to do is to buy off God and to keep him at a distance so he has no say in the way that they choose to live. And how so? Well, there's specific examples here. The wicked Israelites made a point of worshiping God with words, but then they turned around by denying God, that same confession that came out of their mouth, by hating their neighbors. And God's charges are specific violations, if you will, of the seventh, eighth, and ninth commandments. So let's unpack it a little bit. The hypocritical worshipers are guilty of adultery. That's the second half of verse 18. Stealing, the first half of verse 18, and lying. But here's the catch, not in an obvious way, okay? Notice that their sins are the respectable sort. For example, one way to break the commandment you shall not steal is to fall into company with robbers and thieves. So to be a friend of thieves or to show favor to them or to buddy-buddy to up with them is to, is to cooperate in their stealing of their victims, which, by the way, also breaks the 10th commandment. You shall not covet anything that is your neighbor's. And the wicked also 
give free rein to their tongue. They have loose lips. In other words, they have no filter. They think it, they say it. And come hell or high water, who cares? Their evil talk is aimed at their own brother, which is not only a transgression of the ninth commandment, you shall not lie, but also is a breaking of the sixth, you shall not murder, and the fifth commandments, honor your father and mother, since in slandering your brother, you're attacking your own mother. And I want us to not miss the detail here that the slander is done sitting down. Okay? Even the little details in the Bible give us clues to what God is uh, painting a picture of, of us for. The idea is of an armchair critic who's calmly assured of his rightness and his righteousness to judge others. Now, as I studied this passage this week, and one of the things that I try to habitually do is to put myself under the authority of the text also, so I don't appear like one of those guys who's banging his black Bible over your head like I'm more righteous than you are. I mean, honestly, who in this room can deny that all professing Christians are guilty in one way or another of committing such sins? But here's the thing. God is not confronting those of us who regret and hate our sins, who confess and repent, and then who trust again in the Lord Jesus to forgive and make us clean. No, in this passage, what God's doing is he's confronting those who live like this, and then they don't have any regrets at all. Um, Maybe they did it first, their conscience pricking their hearts, but you do it again and again and again, and what are you doing? You're hardening your conscience. You're saying, no, I'm not listening to you, Holy Spirit. And then as you say, my will be done, God, God says eventually, okay, thy will be done. For them, these sins are permissible because they're not the kind that will get them arrested or maybe not even get them into much trouble. When we talk about respectable sins, and there's a, there's a book by that title by Jerry Bridges, by the way, which I highly recommend because it's one of those ones that Christians will open up and say, oh, I don't commit adultery, I don't um, commit lying, I don't break the seventh, eighth, ninth commandments, but ew, when I really unpack what Jesus is saying the law is really intending, I think that I do stand um, in need of covenant inspection. When we talk about respectable sins, we tend to say something like this, uh, boys will be boys, or come on, girls just want to have fun, right? If these respectable sins, my friends, describe your life, if they flow freely out of your heart and their mouth, then I want you to hear, as I tried to listen this week, to the covenant Lord's words in verses 16 and 17. But to the wicked God says, what right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? For you hate discipline and you cast my words behind you. God's literally saying right to your face, how dare you pretend to follow me by tolerating your so-called respectable sins. Now you might be wondering, how in the world does someone who professed Christ get to this point? Well, I've seen it happen many, many times, and this is the way it usually happens. I know a man who's a campus evangelist, okay? And I witnessed him one time um, preaching on campus. And he was speaking to a student who claimed that he had grown up in the church, and once he had gotten to college, he had gotten enlightened. You know where the story's going, right? And he became upset that his church did not teach him everything that he was learning at college about religion and about the Bible and about all that kind of stuff. And so 
what he did was he said, well, I don't need to believe in God anymore because God's not real. I know the truth now. Now, my campus pastor friend, like a, like a wise surgeon, began to probe publicly the reasons that this student gave as he was spouting off in front of the crowd about why he didn't believe in God anymore. And question after question that dug a little bit deeper and a little bit deeper, he got him to admit that around the same time that he began to doubt that God was real, that the Bible was true, and that he needed to submit to him as Savior and Lord was about the same time that he decided he was going to sleep with his girlfriend. Okay? What's going on there, people of God, is the illustration that bad morality fosters bad theology, fosters bad morality, fosters bad theology, fosters, you get the idea, okay? Sinners need to have a justification for living like they're doing. And so they go around trying to find a reason for why they need to stop believing that God is real and that the Holy Spirit is convicting their heart. So they come up with some reason for them to stop believing it because you can't live in that situation where you're being convicted and you're unstable at all times. So bad morality and bad theology are both like seats at the top of a slippery slope and those slides are intertwined. It doesn't matter if you sit down on the bad morality one first or the bad theology first because they're going to quickly come together and they're going to justify each other so that with that student who was saying that he decided to sleep with his girlfriend and now no, he no longer believed in God, well, now he was into bad theology, which was giving him more bad morality, which led to him justifying even more wicked sins. His life slowly spiraled down the tubes. That's what it means for God to, to give us up. In that passage there, where we're going to get to in verse 22, where Jesus says, um, the Holy Spirit says, I will tear you apart if you don't repent. Now, that doesn't mean that God has to literally tear us limb for limb. All God has to do is passively let us keep on sliding down that slide. And if we don't get off, then we'll end up in a place where we won't be able to get out, in the pit of hell. Now, that's not how it has to be. I want you to notice that God is merciful to renew us through covenant inspection before it's too late. As Francis Schaeffer put it, he is there and he is not silent. If right now you feel God accusing you to your face, setting before your eyes the particulars of your inspection, that's only because he loves you and he wants you to turn away from your sin because you've been justifying it and to turn to him in repentance and in faith. So right now, give thanks to him for the grace of inspection and for the, the mercy of conviction because these are actually covenant blessings. Again, let's turn to uh, hear Pastor Tim Keller in his Songs of Jesus. He says, some worship weekly and profess an orthodox faith, but they engage in theft, adultery, slander, and gossip. Why? Well, it's based on too small a concept of God. In other words, you thought I was exactly like you, verse 21. The judgment is terrible, but Jesus took it for us. He was torn to pieces, verse 22. Scourged, speared, nailed, and crowned with thorns. 
Those who trust in him respond with a life of gratitude that honors God and reveals salvation to the world. That's verse 23. That's where we're going here in a moment. No one who is truly saved by faith and grace can fail to live a changed life of love for God and others. That's James chapter 2. And so again, if God is pricking your heart right now, I more than invite you. Remember, we're, we're, we're on stage. We're, we're summoned into God's presence to close your eyes and to pray along with me with these words. Lord, I may not be committing theft or adultery, or maybe I am, and you know, but my tongue does gossip and shades the truth. I confess that I am simply not changed enough by the great truths of the gospel that I profess to believe with all my heart. So please, Lord, forgive me and show me the specific gaps between my faith and my practice and then empower me to close those gaps. Amen. Verses 22 and 23. Let's finish up. Mark this, then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. To one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. Covenant visitation, covenant inspection. You expect this point, covenant judgment. But that's not the name of the third point. It's covenant caution. Covenant caution. He cautions us instead to give us time to repent. Consider this. Those words there in verse 22 are God's way of calling you to understand You rewind back one psalm, Psalm 49 actually ends with that same root word, understanding, linking it between Psalm 49 and Psalm 50. So here, God's calling the wicked who forget him to understand that his thankfulness, that thankfulness and covenant relationship are more important than ritual sacrifices. In other words, this is what God wants, not the system of rules for worship. When wicked people in the church think of God in human terms, Yes, uh, they and we essentially forget who God really is. So the warning here, the caution here, is that if you're secretly or flaunting hypocrisy by denying your profession of faith, by hating your neighbor, and that it does cancel it out, that's what God's word says, then only God is able to deliver you from ruin. But he will do so if you repent and renew your covenant commitment with words that bear good fruit. And that's the last verse. That what is that good fruit? It's both thanksgiving and obedience that reflect the two primary uh, inspections, if you will, the concerns of Psalm 50. Verse 3 sums up what God wants for his people. All of us, individually and collectively, together, must worship God with our bodies, with our external actions, with our words, and with our ritual habits that are prescribed by Scripture. God prescribes them, therefore we ought to do them. But most of all, with our hearts devoted to him, giving thanks in his presence and living a just and kind life as we fellowship with God's people, our brothers and sisters in the faith. If you're not a profession Christian here, sitting in the audience uh, as an outside observer, God has given in you, for Psalm 50, a window into what it's like to be in covenant with God. I hope you've been paying attention. I want you to pay attention and learn to fear the Lord because he has a message for you in Psalms 49 and 52, which we're going to be looking at in the coming weeks. So I invite you to come back 
for the word that he has for those who are in the watching world. Or if you're a professing Christian, most of us here would fall into that category, a member of God's covenant community. Then in Psalm 50, you've been visited by God, inspected by God, and cautioned by God. Next time we're going to look at Psalm 51, which is a terrific response of repentance. So I've urged you to repent, but during the season of Lent, we need instruction for what that repentance looks like. In two weeks, we're going to take a much closer look at that again. The book of Hebrews tells believers that we cannot offer living sacrifices pleasing to God without first trusting in the perfect and final spiritual or blood sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. This is what it says. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. You see, Jesus can enable you to give God what he really wants by spiritually empowering you to worship in the way that actually pleases him. With his blood sacrifice on the cross, Jesus made an eternal covenant by the most beautiful, precious, and effective sacrifice of all, himself, that secured the salvation of us, his covenant people, once and for all. No more blood sacrifices, but now we offer up ourselves as living sacrifices. So, my friends, let us repent. Let us be thankful, and let us bless his holy name. Amen. Let's pray. Father, you are so good to give us this covenant inspection so that we are cautioned and reminded with this course correction how we ought to please you. And Lord, we know that when we are in the place where we're pleasing you, we're doing what we're designed to do and what we're called to do and what we're summoned to do. And for that, we know that we're in our, in our sweet spot because we're in your will. And therefore, we will also be um, pleased and delighted, not in ourselves, but in you. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.